Recently, I read an essay titled, I'm a judge, and I think criminal court is horrifying. It was written by a judge named the Honorable Shelley C. Chapman. She is a bankruptcy judge, or she was at the time of writing this, and so she was not one who had ever sat in judgment in a criminal case. But her daughter was a public defender in the Bronx, New York. And so Judge Chapman wrote this essay after going to a criminal courthouse in the Bronx to watch her daughter in court do her thing as a public defender. This essay contains many really difficult stories to read. And one of the cases that Judge Chapman saw that day had to do with a woman who was a young mother. She was charged with assaulting her husband in the presence of their 10-month-old baby. She had no prior criminal record, but she was being held for assault. According to Judge Chapman, the woman's lawyer said, Your Honor, the only reason the police were called in this case is because the husband was upset that my client told him she was going to leave him. He clearly only called the police in retaliation. He has a drinking problem, and she is scared for her safety and the safety of the child. Right now, she is terrified that her baby has been alone with this man the entire time she's been detained. Now, assuming that this woman's story is true, as told by her lawyer in court, how would you feel if you were in her position? How would you feel if you were standing in court falsely accused of assaulting your husband just because he was mad that you were going to leave him? What would you be hoping for in that situation? I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb by saying I think you'd be hoping for justice. I think in that situation you would want the truth to come out in court and you would want the judge or the jury, if there was a jury, to believe the evidence that you presented and the testimony that you presented. You'd want the truth to come out and then for the court to find in your favor, releasing you, an innocent person, from custody. And that's because that's what human courts are for. Human courts exist to grant justice to people. All kinds of charges can be thrown around by lawyers and non-lawyers alike. All kinds of wrongdoing can be asserted in our world. But the court is supposed to be a place where evidence is weighed, and it's weighed without partiality. And in a perfect world, in a human court, justice prevails. The guilty are condemned and sentenced, and the innocent are acquitted and released. That's how human courts are supposed to work. Human courts exist to grant justice to people. Today, as we come to Luke chapter 23, Jesus has been taken custody by the religious leaders of his day, the chief priests and the scribes and uh, all of the people who were threatened by him after he came into Jerusalem during his triumphal entry and cleansed the temple and began teaching the people, all the people who were worried that Jesus was going to take their power had now conspired against him and they had him arrested. 
And they've already held a religious trial against him. And they found him to be worthy of death for blasphemy because he, in their eyes, a mere man, has claimed to be equal with God by calling himself the Son of God. But in the days in which Jesus lived, Israel was under the authority of the Roman Empire. While the Roman Empire led, led this group, the Sanhedrin that Jesus had uh, been, had appeared before this religious trial in, in last week, uh, week's message, we saw this. The Romans let them judge many matters relating to the Jewish people. But one thing they could not do was put anyone to death. They felt Jesus was worthy of death for blaspheme, but blasphemy was not a sentence that the Romans would care about. And so in order to put Jesus to death and to finally be rid of him, they had to take him before a Roman court and have a Roman governor convict him of something that the Roman Empire would put people to death for. And in this passage that we read earlier, in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25, we see the two criminal trials of Jesus, the, true, the two Roman trials of Jesus. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, will Jesus find justice here? Human courts exist to grant justice to people, and if Jesus is going to find justice, this is the only place where he can find it. He's already been falsely accused of blasphemy by the religious leaders. They've already passed judgment on him. If his fate were in their hands, he would already be dying on the cross. But this civil layer of courts, the Roman courts, are really the last place where Christ might find justice for the crimes for which he is accused. Human courts exist to grant justice to people. And Jesus was taken to human courts in our passage where he could have received justice or injustice. That's what the text this morning is going to reveal to us. It's going to show us the trial of Jesus, and we'll see whether he finds justice or injustice in the human courts of men. Now, I use the language that Jesus was taken to human courts very purposefully, because Christ himself had no interest in appearing in these human courts, as we'll see from his conduct in these trials. No, he was taken to these human courts against his will. And we see that right in the very opening verse. Chapter 23, verse 1 says, Then the whole assembly arose. This is talking about that group, the Sanhedrin. Seventy rulers in Israel, plus the high priest. They've already passed judgment on Jesus. And now they take him, bound, in custody, from the home of the high priest where they were meeting, to the place where Pilate was staying. And the first place where they take him is the court of Pontius Pilate. The first, first he was taken to the court of Pontius Pilate. Verses 1 through 7 tell us about that trial. And again, the question is, will Jesus find justice in this human court? Chapter 23, verse 1 says, The whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Now, Pilate, you understand, is a Roman governor. He is not a Jewish man. He would not understand, nor would he care, about Christ's claim to be the Son of God. There is no way he would find that a death-worthy offense 
or, or any kind of a uh, um, transgression of Roman law. And so the accusers of Jesus have to change the charges against him. They have to come up with charges that the Romans will dislike. And so in verse 1, uh, it says they led him off to Pilate. And verse 2 says they began to accuse him. And this is their formal accusation. This is their formal trial, their formal charge before Pontius Pilate. This is the legal thing they want him to rule on. And what is that legal matter they want him to rule on? Verse 2 goes on to say, we have found this man subverting our nation. That's what Jesus was accused of. He was accused of creating an insurrection against the Roman Empire. Their charges that everywhere Jesus went was designed to build a citizen army that would try to overthrow the Roman Empire and grant uh, peace or um, freedom, you might say, to the nation of Israel, where Christ himself then would be crowned king. And so their charge against him in verse 2 is that he is subverting the nation. Now the rest of verse 2 gives some of the evidence that they have for that charge. It goes on to say he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. These two pieces of evidence are the presentation of evidence against Jesus in this human court of Pontius Pilate. They've accused him of creating an insurrection against the Roman Empire, and their two pieces of evidence are he opposes payments of taxes to Caesar. Now, we saw this back in chapter 20, where they tried to trap Jesus for this very purpose. They asked him if it was right to pay taxes to Caesar, and Jesus said, well, show me a coin. They showed him a coin, and they, he said, whose picture is that? They said, Caesar's. And he said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. Now let me ask you, does that sound like Jesus was telling them not to pay their taxes? Of course not. Now what Christ said was a riddle of sorts, but it in no way was a teaching that, they, that Jewish people should not pay the Roman taxes. In fact, the only really way to interpret what Jesus said is that he told them they should pay their taxes. Because the coin belonged to Caesar after all. And so the first evidence that they give that Jesus was planning an insurrection is patently false. And anyone who had witnessed this exchange could have been called as a counterwitness to say, no, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said just the opposite. He said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And so the first piece of evidence against Jesus is false. The next piece of evidence that then is also in verse 2, and it says... And he claims to be Messiah, a king. Now the word Messiah means anointed one. It's a Hebrew term. But that wouldn't have meant much to Pontius Pilate. They, the anointed one is the, the, the anointed king, the one whom God has chosen to be king. And people were waiting for Messiah to come and, in their mind, to liberate Israel from the Roman Empire. And, of course, God's word had prophesied that Messiah would come. And Jesus did not deny being Messiah. And so they had to interpret this word Messiah for Pontius Pilate, and so they say he's a king. That's, that's the, the idea of him being Messiah or claiming to be Messiah. This is the only thing that they say that is of any interest to Pontius Pilate. And so he picks up on it in verse 3 and says this. So Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate has heard the charges against Jesus, and now he's going to ask Jesus to incriminate himself. 
He's going to ask Jesus if this one piece of the charge, the only one that's really of any interest to him, could in fact be true. And so he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gave his, not, his kind of standard non-answer, a very similar response to what he gave in the preceding trial, the religious trial that we looked at last Sunday. He said in verse uh, 3, you have said so, Jesus replied. Now, Jesus here is not totally admitting that he is the king of the Jews or said that he's the king of the Jews. He's saying, you've said it, and so he's not disagreeing with Pilate, but he's also not testifying against himself. That's the reason for Christ's answer. Pilate is wholly unimpressed by the charges brought against Jesus and the evidence brought against Jesus. And even Jesus' answer, which any way you cut it, is not a denial that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate is not convinced at all that Jesus has done anything wrong. In fact, just the opposite. And so in verse 4 it says, Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Jesus did not deny saying that he was the king of the Jews or being the king of the Jews. And yet Pilate was not impressed, probably because there was not an army of people also dragged in before with Jesus to be charged as part of the insurrection. One man can go around saying anything. That doesn't mean that what he is saying is credible or true or a genuine threat to the Roman Empire. And Pilate's examination of Jesus is much longer, we know from the other gospel accounts, than what Luke has given us here. But despite his conversation with Jesus, and despite Jesus' not, uh, refusal to deny being the king of the Jews, Pilate doesn't think he's done anything wrong. Now, the trial should have ended here. If Jesus is going to find justice in a Roman court, then he should have been released at this point because Pilate has already entered a verdict of not guilty. He said in verse 4, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But Jesus' accusers, Jesus' enemies, are not going to give up so easily. This was their one shot to finally be rid of Jesus. They've been looking for a way to get rid of him for years. And now that they finally have this opportunity, they're not going to give up. And so in verse 5 it says, But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. Now, for this next part of the message, you need to understand a couple, one basic thing about Israel's geography. And that is there are really two parts to Israel. There's the southern part that's called Judea. That's where Jerusalem, the capital city, is. And there's a northern part called Galilee. And there's a, 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 like a lake up there called the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus spent most of his time. Most of Luke's gospel records Jesus' ministry in that northern part of Galilee. Jesus was from Galilee. He grew up in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. Jesus' enemies are saying he's been going around for three years from town to town to village to all these places all over Galilee. He's been stirring up the people. Thousands of people accompanied here, him here to Jerusalem. He's been creating this movement in order to anoint himself king. That's the, the essence of their, uh, their rebuttal here in verse 5 to Pilate. He stirs up the people all over Judea. Now he's saying he's come here to the southern part of Judea. And at the end of verse 5, it says he started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Now, the purpose that they're trying to accomplish here is by telling Pilate, Jesus has been subversively creating this nationwide movement throughout Israel. 
And you don't see any of his followers here. They've all given up. But, but trust me, Pilate, trust us. Jesus has gone all over the place trying to get people to believe that he is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. But they messed up when they talked about Galilee. Because Pilate suddenly saw an out. He doesn't want to have responsibility for this decision because he knows Jesus is innocent. And yet he doesn't want a riot to ensue because a large crowd of people have come. And so he sees an opportunity for a change of venue. Pilate didn't get to where he was by being stupid or by being politically unsavvy. And so he sees this opportunity when the, um, the Sanhedrin mentioned Galilee to get out from under this. Look at verse 6. It says, On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man, that's Jesus, was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, the Romans had a lot of different levels of government. And Pilate was in charge of this southern area called Judea, where Jerusalem was and where Jesus was now. That's why he was the one who was initially hearing this case. But Herod, who was partially Jewish, was in charge of the northern part of Israel. He was, a part of, he was in charge of Galilee. And what Pilate hears when he hears that Jesus has been stirring up the people in Galilee, he hears that maybe this really shouldn't be his case to decide after all. Maybe this is Herod's responsibility. Now, there had been tension, as we'll see, for years between Pilate and Herod. They didn't like each other. They didn't get along, and they probably weren't equals in the Roman government, though it's difficult to see how their authority might have overlapped. If anyone was more powerful or over the other one, it was Pilate over Herod, but it seems like they had some level of autonomy in their various places. And since Herod was partially Jewish, Pilate not only reasoned that, hey, maybe Herod should handle this because, after all, the guy is from Galilee, and he's kind of Jewish, so maybe he'll understand these charges better. And so Pilate sees an opportunity not to acquit Jesus or to convict Jesus, but rather to push the matter off into somebody else's lap. And so that's what he does. In verses 8 through 12, Jesus goes to another trial. First he was taken to the court of Pontius Pilate. Then he was taken to the court of Herod. Now, Herod didn't formally have a court here in Jerusalem. He did have a palace in Jerusalem because, um, because he was partially Jewish. He would come to Jerusalem for the Jewish feast days like other Jewish people did. But anywhere he is, he is able to hold court, and his decisions would be legally, honoring, uh, legally binding. And so Pilate is moving the venue. He's changing the place where Jesus is to be tried, and he's handing him over to Herod. And we see, read that in verses 8 through 12, where the scripture says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Now, he wasn't upset at all to have had this case dumped in his lap, like you might expect. In fact, the Bible tells us in verse 8, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. Now, many chapters earlier in the Gospel according to Luke, some of Jesus' enemies tried to get him out of the way. They tried to get him out of town by saying, Herod wants to kill you, and that was probably a lie. They were trying to scare Jesus into moving to a new area, maybe moving out of Galilee altogether, or at least being quiet, and it didn't work. But the Bible tells us that Far from wanting to kill Jesus, Herod was very intrigued by Jesus. He had heard about Jesus' works of miracles and his teaching. 
And it seems that for, a, for some time he had been looking for an opportunity to meet Jesus and to speak to him and to find out what he's all about. And so verse 8 tells us he was greatly, Herod was greatly pleased because he wanted to see Jesus. But at the end of verse 8 it says, from what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. What did, why was Herod so eager to see Jesus? Because he wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. He wanted to see this miraculous power that he'd heard where Jesus had opened the, the eyes of the blind, where he had raised the dead, where he had maybe turned water into wine. Maybe Herod had heard about that miracle of Christ, or maybe he heard about how Christ had taken the, the five loaves and fish and multiplied them to feed a multitude. We don't know which of Jesus' miracles Herod had heard about, but he'd heard about some of them. And he was hoping to see this miraculous power that he'd heard so much about. And so Jesus' case is transferred to Herod. And verse 9 says, he plied him with many questions. And the way this is worded in the original language is to tell us that Herod attempted to talk to Jesus for a long time. Herod had been keeping maybe a mental note of the things he was curious about Jesus. Maybe he'd heard some of Jesus' teachings and some of the questions he asked Jesus in his trial related to his teachings. Maybe it was about some of the miracles that Jesus had done. Maybe it was about the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah. We don't know what Herod asked Jesus, but we know that he had a lot of questions. Because that's what the text tells us in verse 9. It says he plied him with many questions. But how does Jesus answer? He doesn't. Verse 9 says, but Jesus gave him no answer. Eventually, Herod became enraged with Jesus. He became Maybe enraged isn't the right word, but he became um, less than interested in Jesus anymore. And that's because Jesus' accusers have also moved court with him. And verse 10 tells us the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. So, so Herod is trying to have this private conversation with Jesus. He's trying to get Jesus to answer all the questions that he had about him, and he's getting nowhere. Meanwhile, these guys are yakking in, in Herod's face, as it were. They're, they're off over there just calling him, you know, all kinds of, uh, of, of treasonous things and saying he, he wants to take your place. He wants to be a king. He wants to overthrow the Roman government. You should get rid of this guy. Verse 11 tells us where Herod eventually landed on all of this. It says, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Since Jesus wouldn't answer Herod's questions... Herod concluded that Jesus was not a serious person. Herod concluded that Jesus was somebody foolish, somebody stupid maybe. Maybe someone who wasn't all there mentally speaking. He'd had enough of Jesus, and verse 11 tells us that he joined with his soldiers in mocking Jesus. That is, they took the accusation against him that he was the king of the Jews, and they acted like they were giving a fake obedience to and, and honor to the king of the Jews. Verse 11 goes on to say, dressing him in an elegant robe. And so you see that the purpose or what they were attempting to do was to make fun of Jesus for his claim to be the king of the Jews. And they, they actually went so far as to take maybe one of... Uh, one of Herod's older robes, but one that was still shiny. That's what the word um, that, that in 
the, uh, the word that says an elegant robe, the word there is a bright robe. It means something that would stand out from the crowd, something that someone who was royalty would have. They put it on Jesus in order to make fun of him for his claim to be king. And then verse 11 says, they sent him back to Pilate. Did Jesus find justice in the court of Pilate? No, he did not. He could have. Pilate came to the right verdict, but he didn't have the courage to release Jesus as he should have. When Jesus was given another trial in front of Herod, did he find justice in the court of Herod, in the human court of Herod? No, he did not. Herod didn't believe the charge against Jesus. He saw Jesus as no threat whatsoever. That's why he mocked him. But he wasn't willing to let Jesus go either. He sent him back to Pilate. And verse 12 says, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. And history tells us that this is true, that there had been some great deal of tension between these two men. But finally, they found something that they agreed about. They agreed on the innocence of Jesus and really the ridiculousness of this entire situation. And so for the first time, they had some admiration for one another because neither one of them was duped by this false charge against Jesus. Nor did either one of them bow and worship him as the Son of God, the King of the Jews. For the first time in their life, they found some common ground, these two men. Well, Herod has punted on his responsibility to bring justice in the case of Jesus. And he sends Jesus back to Pontius Pilate. And this time he was sent there for a final verdict. Verses 13 through 21 tell us that Jesus was returned to Pilate for a final verdict. Two two judges have heard the case against Jesus. Neither one of them is convinced by it, not even close. But somebody has to render a final verdict, and the responsibility falls to Pilate. Verse 13 says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And so all of the people who accompanied Jesus to this trial, the Sanhedrin who had accused him, and others who had looked on or who maybe saw them in the streets on their way to Pontius Pilate in the first place or on their way to Herod, maybe people who saw him and wanted to see what would happen had joined the crowd. Pilate calls them all together, and this is, a again, convening a very legal proceeding. He was going to give his verdict. And in verse 14, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. What does Pilate do? First, he states the charge against Jesus. Then he talks about the evidence. In the next sentence in verse 14, it says, I have examined him in your presence. And so Pilate says, I've listened to your charge and the flimsy evidence you had. I asked him the question, and I listened to his answer. And now Pilate is ready to really give the verdict. He's really ready to render judgment here. He's ready to give Jesus the justice that he deserves. At the end of verse 14, Pilate says, and have found no basis for your charges against him. Jesus is innocent of anything that the Romans could or should put him to death for. But Pilate goes on and says this, verse 15, neither has Herod. So he says, not only am I the judge who finds Jesus to be innocent, but even Herod 
Someone who doesn't like me and might be predisposed to find a different ruling because he doesn't like me. He too, verse 15, neither is he, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Pilate is adamant that Jesus is not guilty of any crime of a capital nature that Rome should care about. But Pilate understands that this is a large crowd and that a riot could ensue and that they're very angry with Jesus. And so he looks for a middling position, one where he can release Jesus and not put him to death, but one that hopefully will make the anger of the crowd die down. And so in verse 16, here's what he says, Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. The word punish refers to a whipping that Jesus would receive from a whip that had many ends to it, and each end had a metal piece on it, so it would... It would wound him deeply. It would cut him. It wouldn't just be a kind of whip that would leave bruises on his back. It's one that would cut him deeply, but it wouldn't kill him. And so this is Pilate's plan. I'm going to release Jesus because he's innocent, but I'll give him a good whipping first. That way, if he really was trying to gather an army, maybe Jesus would think twice about it in the future and probably more in, in the forefront of Pilate's mind. This will pacify the anger of the crowd. But Pilate is wrong. Verse 18 says, But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Now one thing that we're not told here in the Gospel according to Luke that we learn in other Gospels is that there was a tradition of releasing a man in custody to the Jews at this time. And we also learn from other Gospels that it was actually Pilate's idea to let the crowd choose between Jesus and Barabbas. Well, who is this man, Barabbas? It's interesting because his name probably, this probably isn't his formal name, it's probably a title, but if we break it down, it means son of the father. So it's kind of an interesting name that he has. But verse 19 tells us what his problem is. It says, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection. What was Jesus charged with? He was charged with fomenting insurrection. What did Barabbas do? He tried to foment an insurrection. And not only that, not only did he try to get people charged up against the Romans, but verse 19 goes on to say, and for murder. And so he actually killed a man in the process of trying to create this revolution against the Romans. In other words, Pilate gives the people a choice between someone who really did what they accused Jesus of and Jesus. Jesus who went around preaching, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Jesus who opened the eyes of the blind, who healed the lame, who loved children and prayed for them. And this man who killed a man and tried to really create a resurrection. Which one of these two would you choose? Which one would you want walking around free in your community? Well, Pilate thinks these people will be sensible and they'll choose Jesus. Release to us Jesus. You can keep Barabbas, but that's not what happens at all. Verse 20 says, wanting to release, or sorry, uh, yeah, verse 20 says, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Remember when Pilate offered Barabbas to them, they said, release Barabbas to us, crucify Jesus. That was their answer. They wanted Pilate to do the unjust thing. They wanted him to release a guilty man, which was unjust, and punish an innocent man, which was also unjust. Three times in this section, Pilate tries to release Jesus. He tries to let Jesus go. 
And verse 22 tells us about the third time. It says, for the third time, he spoke to them. And this time, he tries to reason with them. He's already gone through all of the legal hoops that he needs to go through. And he is well within his rights as the governor of Judea, the legal judge, to say this man has done nothing worthy of death. He's already said that. He is well within his rights to release Jesus. But the crowd will not be pacified. And so now he tries to, to reason with them. Why, he says, what crime has this man committed? I have found no grounds for the death penalty. See, that's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to die. They didn't want him to be whipped. They wanted him to be killed. And so Pilate offers again at the end of verse 22, therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But again, the crowd will have nothing of it. But with the loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And verse 23 says, and their shouts prevailed. Pilate, the only man standing between Jesus and death, the only human being who could give Jesus the justice that he deserved, the one whose responsibility as the ruler in a human court to give justice without regard to political pressure or to the prestige of those who were in his court, he finally buckles to the pressure of the enemies of Jesus. Verse 23 says, their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided, verse 24, to grant their demand. What is that demand? Verse 25 says, he released Barabbas, the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. He lets him go. The one they asked for. He doesn't, Luke doesn't want to name him again. He lets this guilty man go, and verse 25 says, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Now notice, Pilate never issues a finding of Jesus' guilt. He never changes his verdict and says, okay, I was wrong, Jesus, I said he was guilty, but he's, or I said he was innocent, but he's actually guilty. Pilate doesn't do that at all. He never reverses his verdict. He never hands down a guilty verdict against Jesus. What he does, according to verse 25, is he surrendered Jesus to their will. That is, he passed an unjust sentence against Jesus, even though Jesus was an innocent man. Human courts are places where people go to find justice. Did Jesus find justice in these human courts? Did he find justice in the court of Pontius Pilate or the court of Herod? No, he did not. Although courts exist to grant justice, Jesus was unjustly sentenced to death. But why? Because if we pull back, if we, if we zoom back and look at the larger picture, and if we understand everything that the scriptures teach about this moment in the life of Jesus, we would see and we would understand that despite the fact that injustice is happening on earth, all of this is happening under the Father's, God the Father's watchful eye. And then, in fact, this was God's plan all along for Jesus to receive an unjust verdict, to be condemned to death and then eventually to die, even though he was innocent. So Jesus did not find justice in human courts. He found injustice. Why is that? Well, that brings us to the point of today's message, the big idea, which is this. The injustice Jesus received in human courts allowed him to satisfy God's justice 
against us. Now, if you recall on that last Sunday, when we looked at the verses preceding this in chapter 22, we saw how the enemies of Jesus, when they finally had Jesus in their hands, they did not recognize him to be the son of God that he truly is. Instead, they rejected him and they wanted to crucify him. Remember God in the hands of angry sinners, to quote R.C. Sproul. Their response of hatred and rejection of Jesus is what led to this injustice in the human courts. But all of this happened because God wanted to settle the score with all sinners or with, with the sinners of this world that he would eventually save. And so the injustice that Jesus receives in these human courts actually opens the door for God's justice to happen just the way that he wants. And if we understand what God's word says about his justice, we understand this, that God has a case against humanity. Just like Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate for trial and before Herod for trial, and the people of Israel brought their case against Jesus, so God has a case with humanity. He is both the prosecutor and the judge. And he can do that because he is a just judge. And the evidence against us is terrible. Just like Jesus, or just like the, um, the way Jesus was handled in the preceding section, where the religious people rejected Jesus, I told you that time, really any one of us in that moment would have done the same. We would have taken every opportunity to get rid of a just and perfect God if we had the chance. And so God's case against us is that we have sinned, and therefore we justly deserve his wrath. If we stand in the courtroom of God, God will be perfectly just, unlike Pilate and Herod. And the verdict he'll enter against us will be judged, and that verdict is guilty. We are guilty of sinning against the holiness and the perfection of God. But God did not want to sentence all of humanity to death, to eternity apart from him. And so Jesus came willingly and innocently to take the wrath of God for us. This is his goal. This is why Jesus came into the world. This is why he stood silent when he was charged with these crimes that were untrue. Imagine the very word of God. Had he chosen to speak in the court of Pontius Pilate or the court of Herod, had the very word of God chosen to answer the charge against him, of course, he would have been found not guilty. He was found guilty, even though, not guilty, even though he said nothing. If he had made his case, Pilate and Herod would have seen that he was innocent. But Jesus stood silent so that he could take the wrath of God for us. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, and I like the way the New American Standard Bible translates this verse. But it says this, For Christ also died for sins. This is talking about the crucifixion that is coming up very shortly here in Luke chapter 23. Christ also died for sins once for all. The just, that's Christ, for the unjust, that's us. It was necessary for Jesus to be sentenced to death by the Romans so that he could switch places with us, so that he, the just one, could stand in my place, in your place, the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. 
Why did Jesus keep his mouth shut when he was tried in human courts? It's so that he could die in our place. He was silent at his trial so that he could die in our place. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 through 24 says, When they hurled their insults at him, which we read about last Sunday and today, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, that's to God, not Pontius Pilate, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. At the core of our faith as Christians is this. Every one of us is a guilty sinner before a holy and just God. And we justly deserve to be sentenced to eternity apart from God for our sins. But because God loves the world, he came into the world in the person of Jesus and stood trial before Pontius Pilate and died as a Roman prisoner, even though he was innocent, so that he could take the place, so that he could die and receive the wrath of God for us. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Then in verse 25, a guilty man, a man whose name son of the father, is released even though he is guilty, and Jesus dies in his place. Jesus is charged with the very things that Barabbas was guilty of, even though he was innocent. And this Barabbas illustrates perfectly exactly what Christ has done, not for Barabbas, but for every sinner that turns to, to him in faith. Why did Jesus suffer injustice in human courts? It was so that he could satisfy God's justice against us. The only way God could forgive us for our sins is if every sin was punished. And when Jesus was condemned to die and did die on the cross, that's what was happening. He was taking the punishment of God for our sins. So the injustice Jesus received in human courts allowed him to satisfy God's justice against us. Have you received the forgiveness of sins that Jesus purchased on the cross? Have you come to the place in your life where you believe that Jesus died for your sins? And that though he was treated unjustly, now God can be just. He can justify you and forgive you of your sins because Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God for us. This is the core of our gospel. And it explains why Jesus did what he did. I hope if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you'll come to faith in him. You'll turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ.